All right, everybody. So welcome back to Resus Now. Here we are with part two of our opiate addiction treatment episode with Dr. Kenji Oyasu. Again, my deepest apologies for the audio quality. We were recording in a back office in the emergency room that we work in, so our conditions were kind of kind of limited. Hopefully you enjoyed this one as much as the last one. I know I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to having Kenji on again. So without further ado, here we go. really starting to bother me. <laughs> Moving forward from that, mm. um, let's go a little more into the provider EMS side of this. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the, like like you said before, the pharmacokinetics mm-hmm. of Suboxone? Mm-hmm. So there's basically, if, if we're talking strictly opiates, there's three forms of medication-assisted treatment, right? The one on the far end is what we call a full opiate agonist, meaning it hits the opiate receptor and fires it like any opiate would, and that's methadone. Now, the idea behind methadone was actually a good one many, many, many years ago, um, but uh, it's kind of, it's, it's abusable, and that, that's kind of a problem. If you're stable at 30 milligrams, why would you ever go to 50? Why would you ever go to 60? And yet, you know, you find methadone clinics who do that all the time. What do you need? 150? You got it. I'll take care of you. You know, what do you need? 300? But by the time they're in torsades, don't, you know, <laughs> no one figures this out. But, and the problem, of course, is you can also use on top of the methadone, right? Because it's now there's a cumulative effect. You take methadone and your heroin, you're just going to stop breathing, right? On the far opposite end of the spectrum is a full opiate antagonist called naltrexone or Vivitrol. And that is a, it hits the opiate receptor, binds to it, and blocks it out, Right? Idea is great, but it's, it's got to be for the right person. You get that person who used two hours ago, you're going to throw them in a withdrawal that you can't turn off. Then in the middle is this medication called buprenorphine, which is the active medication in Suboxone, which is the most common uh, formulation. But it comes in a few different forms now. Buprenorphine is what we call a partial opiate agonist. So what's interesting about it, it hits the opiate receptor, fires it a little bit, and then kind of snuffs it out, which is interesting because... Now it binds to that opiate receptor, and you, it is hard to use on top of it. It kind of blocks. So it's really, it's really an ideal medication to be used in opiate addiction. And the government decided, yes, we will now allow you to use that drug to treat people with opiate dependence or addiction, what have you. And this is 20 years ago. It's called the Data 2000 Waiver, so Drug Addiction Treatment Act 2000. So 21 years ago, they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to allow you to use this, but... The stipulation is you have to take some education on it, and you need a specialized DEA license for it. And then once you get that license, you can only treat 30 people. I know. You laugh, right? That was 2000. Still, I know it's still limited. Is it still well, 30? Well, it keeps changing. It keeps changing. Now, So now um, they changed it a, a couple years ago where now mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, and uh, PAs can actually apply for their own license. But they need 24 hours of education as opposed to my eight-hour course. And then it was still limited to 30. Now, you can advance that after a year and move it up to 100. And if you want to, and if you qualify, you can go up to 250. Or if you're board certified, you can go to 275. But if you think about the number of people that are looking for medication-assisted treatment, 
and the number of providers willing to give it, there's a huge mismatch. It's something like only 20% who are actually in treatment who are looking for treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit nutty. So the same DEA license I have allows me to write for unlimited amounts of narco, oxy, and fentanyl limit me to the number of people I can provide buprenorphine to. And buprenorphine, like I said, is a partial opiate agonist. If you, unless you're opiate naive, you know, this is all it's going to do is knock out your withdrawal and your crave. And you won't get high. You can't OD on it. Now, if you're, again, if you're a kid and you're opiate naive, yeah, you can get in trouble with it. And we've seen a couple of patients here in, in that regard. Um, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like someone got into mommy's medication kind of thing. And just know. took whatever they could right. in hopes that Didn't realize, well, no, I was a kid who didn't realize that it, was, uh, it wasn't candy. Gotcha. So it was that kind of situation. But, again, it's remarkably safe, you know, and I, I encourage all my providers to give it out in the emergency room. So I made sure that it's in the PIXIS at both our facilities yeah. here, so you can give it out. The, the challenge is to make sure it's, it's all about timing now. The only issue with buprenorphine is it's, it does have that higher opiate receptor uh, affinity. So if you just used and you're feeling normal right now and we give it to you, it'll displace the norco or oxy off your brain and throw you into withdrawal that we can't turn off. Okay, so you want to avoid that. So it's all about timing. So when people come to my office, I said, you know, this is a timed event. If you're on Norco, I can tell you the pharmacokinetics. If you're on heroin, I don't know what's really in your system. You know, we can look at the urine and say, oh, it's positive for opiates, maybe positive for oxy, maybe positive for fentanyl. How much? Don't know, right? But we have to do the math on that. So what I typically do is I put them on some mitigating medications, something for the nausea, something for the cramping, something for the anxiety. Because opiate withdrawal is a lot like the worst stomach flu you've ever had in your life coupled with the worst panic attack at the same time. And if you could turn that off by knowing this, oh, you do it. Absolutely you do it. So I don't blame them. I, I get it. So, But to, if someone's coming looking for help and trying to get into recovery, well, then we got to give them every resource possible. What they really need is a kind ear, you know, because we look at them, again, we've marginalized these patients. We, we stigmatize the disease. And even with the medical community, you know, I got new grad nurses out there who are saying, oh, she, she never should have started this. Really? You know, you don't get it. Okay. You don't know their backstory. You don't know what their backstory. That point. It might yeah. have been act, like you said, like we were talking about before. You got that one push of morphine in the hospital twenty years ago, and you've been chasing it ever since. Right. You don't know. Right. What I uh, what I what I so what we now know about the disease process. This is a neurotransmitter imbalance problem, and much like if we look at depression and anxiety as being a serotonin level of this and a dopamine level of that, you know, if you said one line of coke switch that, inverted it like 10 times tenfold. Well, that's the, you know, that is the Grand Slam home run we were just talking about. So what I, what I try to tell people who don't get it, and, you know, it's typically, you know, I have a, a room in my office that's got five chairs in it. It's not because it's really one-on-one really -on -one with the patient, but the other three chairs are for the family members who don't quite understand what they're going through. And they say, why can't he just quit? I said, it's not his decision to quit, you know. So let me explain this to you. If, uh, and I, always, I, I make the chocolate chip cookie analogy all the time, and my wife's tired of hearing this one. But I love chocolate chip cookies. Like, you could wake me up at 3 in the morning and whisper, dude, dude, I got a chocolate chip cookie. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Love the chocolate chip cookie, right? So if I come through the door and I smell Toll House cookies bacon, and I'm going, oh, yeah. What that is is dopamine going right, mm -hmm. right to my amygdala, right, going something good's about to happen here. And that is, is what people with substance use will experience when they're coming up onto that street corner or going to see their 
their drug dealer or whatever it is. You're going, here it comes. I'm about to get that surge, but you never get that surge anymore after you start using. So it's a kind of a cruel hoax on, on, the, on the patient. So it's no longer the actual drug that makes it uh, makes them give that dopamine rush. It's it's the trickle of dopamine that they're now kind of chasing. Um, one of the things you said that I've I mean, I've noticed it from working with you. You said it's nice to give them a kind ear. Mm -hmm. I know, at least in your practice, you make yourself available mm -hmm. to your patients mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, and I, I've told this to colleagues who are not in addiction. They said you've got to be absolutely crazy. You give out your personal cell phone number. I mean, the same one that my wife has, my kids have, the CEO of the hospital has, my chief medical officer has, to, you know, in case there's a disaster in the hospital, that whatever. I give that same level of attention to my patients. And that's, we call it concierge-style medication, you know, concierge medicine. Uh, but the reality is, in this type of business, if you're a, a one decision away from, a, from overdosing on fentanyl, you really need access to someone, you know, and... Uh, the, there's so much self-hatred and guilt in this disease process because they've been hiding it for so long. So they don't come out and tell you when they, in their, especially in the emergency room. You know, their defenses, their guards up, their 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 defenses are high. And if we, God forbid, we had the wrong body language that says that in, that they will interpret as he doesn't believe me, he thinks I'm a piece of shit. You know, I'm a uh, I'm a dirty drug addict. Oh my God. You know, they're already going to start backing off. And, you know, those are the people that are start freaking out on, in the ear, right? I always say that there's two types of people with uh, addiction. They're either charming as hell to get what they want, or they're just malignant, right? And they scream at you to get what they want. And we've seen them both. Yeah, more malignant than, <laughs> than charming. Than the Unless charmer? the charming ones are so good we don't realize it. Well, you, you know the charming ones here, yeah. too. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they deserve help, is my point. They mm -hmm. deserve a chance like anyone else, you know. We don't look at the asthmatics who, you know, walk past a dusty room and they start going having their asthmatic episode. We don't, I mean, that, if you think about it, that is relapse of a chronic condition, right? That's the same thing, really, right? Again, it just doesn't have the same stick. So I've heard before about alternatives to Suboxone or even like before Suboxone was a thing because you said it's only been about 20 years um, either the cold turkey, you're stuck in this hospital for two months, you just got to deal with it, or the the medically induced coma mm -hmm. to help you get through your um, your withdrawal symptoms. What are your thoughts on those? Well, I think they don't work, and there's a reason why. But think about why people with opiate use disorder get into trouble is that with prolonged use their brain has developed more opioid mu receptors. So if you think about it, those mu receptors haven't gone away. And is there, initially we have, have something called upregulation, right? We have more, we've developed more. And over time, is there downregulation? Well, theoretically, yes. But uh, the reason why cold turkey doesn't work, you know, they, you will get past the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, and the, and, you know, the sweats and the... And, just liquids pouring out of every pore in your body, eventually, you know, 96, 100 hours, maybe a week, you will feel less bad, but you'll still have that constant sense of, like, dysphoria where you feel, ugh, right? And you know that a couple of pills will make that ugh go away, right? So that's because you still have those opiate receptors that are now empty 
you know, and screaming out for it to be covered by something. So the whole concept of rapid detox is ridiculous, you know, and not only that, it's life-threatening. You know, you, you take away someone's airway, electively, um, and, you know, there, the complications of that are immense. To do what? You know, 72 hours later, those mu receptors are still in your brain. So why would that work? Just conceptually doesn't work. The abstinence-based model, you know, surrounded by people who are talking about higher power, now it does work for some people, and I will celebrate that 5% success rate. But I'm in medicine, man. You tell me that giving aspirin to an MI has this efficacy and beta blockers have this efficacy because of all these huge studies, I'm going to do it, right? And if you tell me this has got a 5% success rate versus 9, you know, and a 95% failure rate, I'm not going to do it. It just doesn't even make any sense. But we've been doing it for a very long time because we don't look at it as the disease process that it is. That's a good way of thinking, I feel like. Um, we were talking before the show and you mentioned something about like exchanging one thing for another. And I think I have an idea of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but can you kind of go into depth on that sure. for me? So people say that all the time. They say, well, you're, you're no longer on heroin, but you're not, you're on Suboxone. But think about this. You know, what we decided was the difference between addiction behavior and dependence, right? So if you no longer lie, cheat, and steal, okay, and that's what, it, that's what it's about. It comes down to that, you know, and you're talking about at any level of compulsive behavior is considered addiction. Whether it means you took a couple of, you know, bills out of your kid's piggy bank to pay for another round of drugs, or you're driving to the west side, or, you know, knocking over grandma for her purse, kind of, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's a big, runs the gamut. <clears throat> but if that behavior stops, because you're t- you are on Suboxone, and you are no longer engaging in that illicit behavior, not, you're now in recovery, right? So if you, and I, I ask patients this all the time, how much money do you spend on drugs? And I'll, I'll say, how much time do you spend around the whole drug thing? Meaning getting it, getting money for it, worrying about it. And the two most common answers are a hundred bucks a day. Yeah, you, you go, whoa. Yeah, that's... And all day long. So it's a lifestyle. I wake up in the morning going, God, what am I going to do today? Mm-hmm. I go to bed and I go, God, what am I going to do tomorrow? Right? And 100 bucks a day over the course of a year is a Jeep Cherokee 4x4 leather seats, auto start, halogen lights. I've done the math. How long have you been doing this, sir? 11 years. Okay. That's 11 Jeep Cherokees you should have really had. But don't look back, right? Look forward. From here on out, you get to save 2800 or uh, three grand a month, right? And guess what? You get to have all that time back. If you're going to tell me you spent even eight hours a day worrying about it, that's a full-time job. And Saturday and Sunday, they don't take the days off. So that's... Eight, you know, seven days a week. Right. It's mind-boggling. It is. It but, really is. But to someone with, you know, a, a substance use disorder, it's that's the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So what I like about treating patients in, in this regard is that you give them their life back. And f- legitimately. You know, emergency medicine, we're always talking about great saves. You know, we like to high-five each other after we shock someone out of VTAC or intubate them at the last moment or, you know, blew out that tension pneumothorax. But how often does that happen? One in 10,000 patients. Right. You know, and I'll tell you, in addiction medicine, I'd say 95% of the patients I see will say, I, will say I, 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 I saved their lives. And all I did was be nice to them. Well, I said, for the first time, I, I, I sat down with someone and said, I get it. And this is not entirely your fault. You know, you own a piece of it, yeah. But did you know that you had these 11 risk factors, right? And this is why you're in the situation you're at. And because of the stigma behind the disease process, you hid it for a long time. I've had married couples come into my office and say, you know, 
she's pointing that he's been doing this for 10 years. I've only known for five. I'm like, wait a minute. You slept next to this guy for 10 years and didn't know about it for the first five. Yes. That's how easy it is to hide something like this. You know, if you're in a mild withdrawal, you're going to say, oh, I'm just sick. Oh, I got the flu or whatever. Then you got to disappear to the west side for a little while. And you're, you know, and you come back and like, oh, I'm not sick anymore. But risking your life, risking, you know, legal issues, risking your everything. What, um, what percentage of, or not even a percentage, so let's say, or how long is your typical treatment program for somebody from the time you first meet them until the time that you feel you don't need, either they don't want to see you anymore because they feel like they're completely rehabilitated or you feel like they're good or is there, or is there never a point where you feel like they're good? Well, I think that's a great question because everyone's different. Again, there's no one size fits all. And then the problem we've been doing this for so long is here's a 28 day program, here's a 30, here's a 90 day program, you're good, you're cured. Really? I mean, think about it. We, like what we talked about, has the changes in your brain gone away? No, they haven't. So there's got to be a maintenance component to it. But also understand, like, we, like the analogy I made about the bakeries and the candy store, so the home and environmental component has to be fixed also, right? So the only idea behind medication-assisted treatment is that you will not be in withdrawal and you will not crave, which means you don't need to seek, right? So then you've got to fix the other behavior, but you have to still treat the underlying depression, the anxiety, whatever home environmental stuff going on. If you're a battered wife and you survive by taking 200 Norcos a day, you know, then that home situation has to get fixed as well. So I always look at this disease process, like I said, is terminal, um, really lifelong. But, and it's, so it's a, it's a logarithmic curve, okay? So look at it as for every day that you're in recovery, your risk factors are going down, 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 down. But it's never going to be zero, right? So it starts to curve. It's not linear. It doesn't get to a point where at this, you know, at six months you're down, your risk is zero. It's not going to be that way. It's not going to be that way. So when you hear stories about what happened to that guy, he was doing so well, he was in recovery for 10 years and he OD'd, I can tell you why. Because his risk factor was never zero. And then some crazy shit went down in his life that you don't know about, and he went back to his old friend, you know, old reliable, right? And he didn't have the resilience anymore. He didn't have the, the, uh, the stamina anymore. Um, so he stopped breathing. And that's typically what happens. You know, this is um, what's fascinating is statistically more people OD in this country than are killed by gunshot wounds and motor vehicle accidents. Mm -hmm. Yet you turn on the news, it's all day long. It's Gunshot wounds and yep. more vehicle accidents. Because yep. that's sexier news, yep. right? They don't want to hear about the people who OD'd. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, that's right. But this is this killed, what, during COVID, 90,000 people? Do you think it, did it go up? Like Absolutely. The, you, did you yourself witness the numbers go up? We I, mean, I don't doubt that it did because nobody was able to do anything. Right. Well, because there was a lack of resources, mm -hmm. right? People are shutting down their offices. You know, fortunately, we just pivoted and we went um, virtual. Mm. So, and you're able to do that in the outpatient setting and you know, when you're treating even, even behavioral health. So there's, Zoom did a great thing for, for mental health and, and substance abuse, but, you know, the people they used to get together for group meetings, that all went away, right? So that resource diminished. Like I said, this is a two-part thing. You need the meds, but you still need that group interaction. And if you don't have that anymore, again, your risk factors go back up. What percentage of your patients that you've seen do you think have... I'm sure you know the exact number, 
have successfully made it through the treatment and then maybe a year or two, six months, one month, come back, square one? Um, I don't have a good percentage on that. I would say that the key thing here is that if you are now... Okay, so we talked about the difference between dependence and addiction. Mm. So now patients may be dependent on Suboxone or Zubsolve or one of the other buprenorphine products. But guess what? They are no longer, they are no longer addicted. They are in recovery. So their lives went back to normal. So they went back to work. They repaired their relationships. They learned a new language. They quit smoking. There's all these other things, that, great things that happen because they're on medication. Now, my dad is dependent on his ACE inhibitor, his statin, his, his Proscar, his, all his medication. No one calls him a statin addict. Right? He didn't exchange one for another. Yeah. He's, yeah. But he's dependent. I'm a dependent on Allegra D, especially during this time. It's I'm miserable without it. Um, so when is someone actually ready to come off? I'd say whenever the patients, like I said, they've addressed all the other issues. If they fix their lives, right, we start coming down on the medication. We have to do wean them down very slowly. So I have people you know, at... 24 milligrams a day, for example. I got people at one milligram every other day kind of thing, and they're ready to jump off. But I got to make sure that they're ready to jump off and their environmental uh, issues are sound and their mental health issues are sound. So it's complicated. Um, I would say that they're probably uh, a group of people that I would say should probably never come off a of medication. And whether that's one of the three forms, methadone, you know, Vivitrol, or buprenorphine, because they're at such advanced disease you know, you've seen them. They come to the mm-hmm. ER with like abscesses all over every part of their body. They have no no veins left. That person, in my opinion, should never be off a of medication because if the medication prevents them from going to the streets to buy more stuff, then you so be it. You know, how many times do we wean people off of their insulin? Right? Yeah, no, how many times yeah, do we wean yeah, people yeah, off their statin? Yeah. I don't think you need your ACE inhibitor morning, sorry, because you know that MI you had a couple <laughs> years ago. You should be fine now, really, because the risk factors aren't zero. Mm-hmm. So let's, I think this is all very foreign to me because all my medical experiences are all emergency-based. Mm-hmm. Like, walk me through, let's say I'm addicted to, to Norcos or I'm taking an oral Dilaudid that I stole from somebody mm-hmm. and I decide to come to your office. Mm-hmm. Walk me through, like, those first couple steps so people have an idea of yeah. what the experience is like. Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing I do is I applaud them for making it through the door. Because, you know, they see a website, maybe they see a Google review, maybe, and they go, uh, you know, a lot of places that they've been to uh, for recovery in the past have been kind of seedy, you know, if the kind of places that, uh, and this is a very vulnerable patient population, you know, they're already like self-deprecating to begin with, and they already have this self, filled with self-hatred, and they come to you, and, and if, if you're not, if you don't treat them with, with kindness and compassion, it's not going to work. So I would say I always applaud them for making it through the door because you don't know. I could have been a complete asshole for all you know. You don't know who I am. But maybe you heard from someone else that I'm a pretty good guy, that I care, and that I'll take care of this. And people will say, do I still have to be uh, on drugs or can I still be using when it comes to And I say absolutely yes. But my fear is that, you know, they'll, I'm going in tomorrow. I'm going to use whatever I have left. And that's a very dangerous mm-hmm. day. People who know they're going to, say, a rehab facility, they're going to use up the rest of their stuff, you know, before they go in, thinking, I don't want to waste it. Uh, so we always, that's why we always intervene. When someone hits our website or calls the answering service, I call right away. And I said, well, what's your situation right now? Are you safe? You know, and sometimes, and people are hitting my website, you know, on their smartphones at 2 in the morning. So fortunately for us, you know, I have access to a facility 24-7. 
especially if they're in Lake County, you know, they'll, I said, if you go to the emergency room, if you're in, in that much of a crisis and you're, you know, worried about it. Um, but when I, they come to the office, I'll, you know, I'll take a, a detailed history, I'll do a brief exam, and uh, we talk about the neurochemical imbalance that is addiction. And I, I explain it to them, and it's like lights go off, and they're like, oh my God, I've never heard anyone describe it this way. And trust me, my parents, my family, my boyfriend, my husband, you know, they all treat me like I'm a dirty person and I feel the same way. I'm like, well, you're not because X, Y, Z, right? So, and I'll show them PET scan, MRI pictures. I'm like, this is where, this is what part of your brain is affected. This is a neurobiologic problem. If I were a neurologist, we'd be talking about your MRIs and stuff all day and the medication you need for it. So this is really no different. So, and then it's all about timing. So I said, well, when did you use last? We kind of do the math on that. You're probably ready to be start, start treatment in 24 hours, 36 hours, 48, 72, depending on what opiate they're coming off of. And methadone's the toughest one because it's got the longest half-life. If I tell them, hey, by the way, you have to be off all methadone for, seven, you know, for a week, they look at you like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. Uh, so I'm like, well, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna mitigate you with about five different other medications, right? I'm gonna put you on this, 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 and this. And when it's go time, you're going to start with this. And then we do home inductions. I mean, it's one thing to come into the office and run to my bathroom, but you're better off being at home under your own covers, shivering, going to your own bathroom with your own fuzzy slippers on, right? So what do I really need to know is, how do you feel right now? And that's a moment-by-moment -moment thing, but guess what? I can text that, right? So we'll do a lot of text uh, home uh, inductions. And I only need to know, text me in about an hour, let me know how you feel. Text me in 45 minutes, let me know how you feel. And oftentimes I'll ask them on the zero to 10 scale, right? If 10 is full-blown withdrawal and zero is completely normal, where are you? And it's easy to quantify that because oftentimes they say, hey, how do you feel? Like, shit, doc. That doesn't help me. <laughs> like, I want to know how feculent you feel. So is that is like 7 out of 10 shitty or is this like 6 out of 10? You know, so if, if they're able to quantify it, what's interesting is we'll give them a little medication at a time and you'll watch the numbers come down, down, down. And if you can cut and paste every text conversation because it's very similar, like, they're like, oh my God, I feel completely normal now. What the hell happened, you know? I said, well, you are now in recovery. That's what's happened, okay? So you don't need to suffer, and you don't need to be a full-blown 10 out of 10, but we need to get you, to, like, you need to be able to see it from where you are when you start. So, and then, you know, when I see patients on day one, they look terrible, right? And then one week, I have them come back for the follow-up to see how they're doing. They're a completely different person. And then one month later, six months later, you would not recognize these people. You know, they're all cleaned up now. They're, they, they, you know, they, they've got a different outlook. Their face is done. Their hair is cut. You know, they're all like looking good, and they're getting back into their old, old lives. Mm -hmm. And that's it's the repair of the old lives that makes a big difference. You know, I'll get them there, and I, and I'll say this all the time. Like I'll lead you to water, but I'm not going to waterboard you. You got to want this, you know, and I'll, I'll help you do it. And the reality is, it's not that hard. Uh, or the flip side is, it, it really is very hard. Because you both have to be, you know, 100% committed to this, you know. What advice would you have for not just ER-related people, but anybody in a medical treatment setting that isn't directly involved with it? If they notice the signs and symptoms yeah. of an opiate addict or... I noticed this guy's getting a lot of refills on his nose. Like, you might be a pharmacy tech listening yeah, to this show, and yeah. you're seeing the same person come in for Narcos yeah, yeah. every week. What advice would you have for those people? I would... To help, like, to help yeah. the person get treatment. 
it's a difficult conversation to start. Yeah. It really yeah. is. So when people come to the ER and, you know, they're grubbing for Narcos because they're, they're here because their lumbar radiculopathy is acting up again, or their dental pain, you know, their teeth that are rotting out of their head saying, you know, no, my tooth is so bad. I'm like, it's been like that for seven months, dude. You know, it's not, that's not, that didn't happen today. But you have to have the conversation and you have to go about it with a certain amount of compassion. You're like, I get it. This isn't your fault. Here's an alternative. You know, and I have that conversation and, and if people aren't ready for it, they won't accept it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried. You know, if in the ear when I get someone to finally admit like, oh my God, yes, thank you. You know, and if they if they start to cry, I know, yeah, I, you definitely I, hit something. There. You hit something. I was on a uh, a plane coming back from spring break one year, and uh, the lady sitting next to me uh, in silence the entire flight, and I happened to be wearing uh, one of those rubber bands around my wrist that said uh, "Got Narcan." Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, she taps me on the shoulder, like two and a half hours into this flight, she goes, "I gotta ask, well, you know, what's that all about?" I said what I did, and I said, you know, I do outpatient opiate addiction, and this is made by, you know, this organization that, you know, we're trying to bring awareness to this, this problem. As it turns out, she is a nurse on an ortho floor in the Chicago metro area, and she's like, God, I've always wondered, you know, we jack these people up on these PCA pumps, and we send them home with like a bucket full of oxy, and I'm like, God, what am I doing? I'm like, yeah, that's how it starts sometimes. Not necessarily always, but that's sometimes how it starts. So you got to have this conversation. You got to have this conversation at the Starbucks, you know, at your coffee clutch, at your, at your, in your inner circle. Like, because someone, the statistics are, one in five people know someone with a substance use disorder, and that's, you know, that's not one town over. That's next door. Mm-hmm. That's someone within the family. You know. Well, what do you feel about? I know at least around our area, I've noticed either police departments, rescue departments. They Narcan somebody, bring them back, drop them off with us in the emergency room. Sometimes they'll throw, like, a little goodie bag at them. It's like, here's a couple treatment programs you can go to, and here's a thing of Narcan. Yeah. Do you think that's helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, people look at Narcan, and I've had run into this in my own group here. They said, you know, I'm not giving Narcan to these people, you know. They believe in the whole Darwinian concept. And I said, you know what, you know, you wouldn't say that if this was a family member. Right, and could, this very well could be. So, um, giving Narcan to people with opioid use disorder is harm reduction. You know, people don't see it that way. Like, oh, you're just allowing them to. No, no, you're not allowing them to use more. They just know that. You know, for, for example, in other countries, they've already figured out an opiate ad- addicted person is going to use the opiate no matter what. They're going to use it, right? So, safe injection sites. We'd never dream of that stuff here, but they're finally they're doing it here and there. Canada, France, I mean, you know, in European countries, they're like, yeah, they're going to use it anyway. We might as well make it safe. And, you know, guess what happens? The number of people, the number of deaths go down. The number of HIV, hepatitis goes down. So morbidity and mortality goes down. If you accept that, and you have to get into that. Um, so, yeah, to get a Narcan injector and some information on some resources, but legitimate resources. For example, if you were to go to the Suboxone website, SAMHSA website right now, and say, you know, Suboxone doctor near me, 60085, right? It'll look like all these red dots on the map. Like, here are all the providers in your area. Try calling them, Mm -hmm. right? And I've done this. Try calling all 300. See what happens. No answer, no answer, full, full, no answer, full, hello. What do you mean, hello? Who's this, you know? (laughs) Um, But that's the kind of thing that happens. And, you know, when people come to me driving two and a half, three hours from southern Illinois, I said, you've got to be kidding. There's no in-between Carbondale 
in Park Ridge, Illinois, that you couldn't find? No, I called them all. I'm like, you're the only one who answered the phone. I'm like, wow, that is that is humbling, you know? Very, yeah. And I tell you, you know, these are, like I said, this is uh, the disease that doesn't discriminate. So I got people that look like they might actually be a heroin addict. I got, and, and there are people who roll up in their Range Rover with their Rolex watch on, wearing a three-piece suit and carrying a briefcase, you know? And it's the same disease process. So... I, again, it's a matter of like being a resource uh, for a, a patient population that's in need. And then, what's the the half life for Narcan? Well, the half life for Narcan. Well, it, you know, it depends on who you listen to. Mm-hmm. I would say that most people would say that you know five half lives is you, when you know you're you're out of the woods. Mm-hmm. And so, whether that's two and a half hours, three hours, I think you know most people in our group will kind of sit on someone for about three hours. Yeah, it's about the average here. Yeah, but, you know, that's a long length to stay mm-hmm. on something that we're being criticized on. But, again, everyone's a little bit different in how well they metabolize it, their use history, and what the actual opiate was. So sometimes you know, they'll tell you, sometimes you don't. You know, we don't test uh, enough uh, urines with a, an adequate testing mechanism. Mm-hmm. For example, the one we have here doesn't even test for synthetics. So, you know, it will not test for fentanyl, will not test for oxy. <laughs> it's just crazy. You're like, well, why are we even bother? Like, it's got to be a, a morphine-based opiate. Well, that's not what's out there right yeah. now. You know, people are dying from fentanyl right now. Because I, I think the, the Narcan, the little goodie bags, probably the wrong word for it. Yeah. The, it popped into my <laughs> yeah, head. Yeah. Um, it's a good idea, but I feel like they need, I don't know if it includes, like, some education on the drug, because... At least I know. I'm sure you've seen exactly the same thing. Yeah. A couple of years ago, it was I think it was Father's Day. We had a guy roll up in the back seat of a car, blue, yeah. dead. It took I think 12 of Narcan to wake yeah. him up. True. We get him back. He gets angry, signs out AMA. We True. let him go. Yeah. He leaves and goes yeah. right back to shooting up, and he right. died. Yeah. And then his family came back to us. Sure. Why'd you do that? Why'd sure. you let him die? Like, well, we were trying. Right. Right. And I think he just kept shooting up the heroin and yeah. not feeling it. And, yeah. and at some point it just clicked off. And yeah. So that is what I would call an advanced disease process, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, uh, is there is there such thing, uh, such thing as too far gone? I, I don't know. But, you know, we treat all these end-stage metastatic disease patients, you know, all the time. And we're hanging on as long as we can. Um, but I think everyone's... It, everyone deserves uh, the opportunity to get better. And like I said, they just deserve treatment. And most of the time, they just don't know what's available. So I think our job is to educate them, you know, let them know, hey, you can go see this person and, and get this done, you know, and you can get started right here, and here's some information, um, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll find the path to recovery. And then... EMS-wise, I'm sure it's going to be mostly the same, but is there any unique perspective you can put on it for the people that are out on the street dealing with these face-to-face in a more yeah. intimate environment? And I think EMS gets very frustrated by seeing the same people over and over again, like, oh, I narcan that guy last week kind mm-hmm. of thing. But just understand the fact that, you know, there will come a time that one, he's going to go one way or the other. He's going to either going to recover or he's going to die, you know. And you don't want him to die on your watch. So give him every opportunity. Again, you probably don't know what kind of crap he's gone through in his life that got him to this point. And by the time you're getting called, I mean, again, this is pretty advanced disease. So education is going to be huge. We've got to get kids at the junior high school level, you know, educated on, on substance abuse. And unfortunately for us, you know, kids who are an underdeveloped brain will make 
impulsive decisions all the time, you know. So uh, it's a matter of like trying to figure out how to get them early, early stages. You know, when I have a 20-year-old patient in my office, I'm like, great, congratulations, thank God. Because, you know, if you're 50 when you come to me, think about 30 years of waste mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, the life threat and the money lost and, you know, the, uh, the lifestyle that you've had to lead to, to survive to this point, get it done now, you know. So, yeah. Um, just two, it's a one, two-part final question. Okay. One of them is really broad and just covering my own ass. Is there anything <laughs> else we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover? And then the thing that I would like you to finish on is hypothetically, somebody's listening to this podcast and a light went on in their head and they go, oh my God, I have a problem. What would you say to them? And if you can't think of anything, I'll just invite you back for a second. <laughs> well, I would say that it's important to look at addiction as a chronic medical condition um, and that we should not stigmatize and marginalize patient, this patient population because that's what's going to keep... It's going to worsen the situation, right? It's going to keep people in that addictive spiral. And I would say that if you're someone listening to this and you may have the issue yourself or know someone, start that conversation. You know, reach out to someone that you trust. Reach out to some help because help is out there and good help is out there. But it's just a matter of finding it. Um, I think I know people in in addiction that I trust and I'll, I will refer people to all the time. I think there are fine residential programs, uh, IOPs, and all sorts of different levels of treatment that you know I, I think we, people don't even realize that, that ex exist. And I'd say on a final note, I have this meme that I always send patients. Uh, you know, on, once they hit that moment, they're going, "Oh my God, I'm good now." You know, I send this. It's a little thing. I, I'll send them. And I've had this on my phone for years actually, and it says, and I don't, I don't know who I stole this from, but it says. Even though there are days I wish I could change some things that happened in the past, there's a reason the rearview mirror is so small and the windshield is so big. Where you're headed is much more important than what you've left behind. Words to live by. Start the conversation, get some help. Kenji, thank you very much. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Recess Now. If you want to hear more from Dr. Kenji, um, let me know. I'll get him back on the show. You want to plug your website again so uh, people know where to go? Well, www.modernmedrecovery.com. You can Google search Modern Med Recovery, and I'll, I'll pop up. He'll, he's there. You'll he's find there. him pretty easily. <laughs> so until next time, thank you, Dr. Kenji. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Barker, even though you're not here. Uh, he's there in spirit. Thank you, Luz, for helping out with everything else behind the scenes. And thank you to myself for nothing, really. I didn't really do anything. You did it all, man. <laughs> Thanks, brother. And thank you, Dr. Oyasu, for coming on the show. It was a big honor. Obviously, I'm not in the studio with him anymore because you can actually hear me again. But I really do appreciate that he took time out of his busy schedule to sit down with me and just give a brief insight into what it's like to treat opiate addiction. I think it was really interesting. If you guys want to hear more, I will happily sit down and interview him again. We had a great time. We had a couple beers. Just sat back and shot the shit, and it was a lot of fun. So leave your comments on Facebook, leave your reviews on iTunes, follow us everywhere you can, promote the show as much as you can. Uh, let me know what you want to hear next. I'm going to try and get my 
uh, social media show out next, and then we'll see where we go from there. Maybe some psych-related shows, maybe something else. I'm not really sure yet, but we'll find out when it happens. Uh, My apologies again for the audio and for taking so long to finally put out a full episode, but it happened, and that's the important part. So until next time, thank you all very much. My name is Matt, and this has been Recess Now.